Beginnings are just exciting in, in general, right? It doesn't just have to be the football season. I mean, for a lot of you guys, uh, you've just started your time in college, and I know that's a really exciting time in life. It might have um, some nerves, of course, that are associated with it as well, but there's, there's so much excitement about what, what's in front of you. Um, some of you maybe have gotten into a new dating relationship recently or something like that. That's always exciting, right? You're, you think about, oh, what could this become? Beginnings are exciting because they're filled with possibilities. They, uh, they cause us to start dreaming about what this beginning could turn into. And in some ways, what makes the beginnings fun is not even the event itself, but the, the dreams that we can have because of it. You know, when something starts, we have a tendency to look down the road and think about how it will end, or at least how it's going to mature. Right? So as a Bengals fan, I'm excited about the start of the season because I think it's going to end with us in the Super Bowl. Um, but when we look at the biblical story, there, there's so much that's exciting about the beginning of that as well. It, it opens full of possibility, and it also gets us to, to think about, okay, where is this story going? How is it going to mature? What is, what's going to be the end of this? You know, the first book of the Bible is, is a book called Genesis. It records the very beginning of history. It takes us all the way back to the time of creation, which is super interesting in and of itself just to learn about that. But also when we read it, it points us forward towards some really important things that are going to happen in the future. And the foundation that's laid in the book of Genesis actually echoes throughout all of Scripture. It's not just ancient history. And it's something that actually has a huge impact on the way we read the rest of Scripture and what we can look forward to coming in the future. You know, we're going to see that throughout this series, but today we are going to begin our series on the beginning, the book of Genesis. On Sunday mornings this, this year, we're going to be preaching through the book of Genesis, and I am excited for it uh, because it is such a rich and important book in the Scripture. It shows us so much about who God is, who we are, and what his plan for the world is. It's ancient history, but it's packed with valuable truth that has the power to change the way that we see the world, and that can have a real and tangible impact on our lives in this very day. Um, so I want to pray for us, and then uh, we'll dive into what I have prepared for this morning. God, we thank you for who you are. You are so worthy of our worship. God, I enjoyed that, just getting to Sing with my brothers and sisters about your goodness, Lord, about your amazing grace. You're the same God that we read about with all the wonderful things, and we're going to read about you doing wonderful things today, and uh, you're still that same God. I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship together. God, I pray that uh, this time as I preach would just be an extension of that worship, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would stir up within our hearts a greater love for you. Help us, Lord, to come to a greater knowledge of you, a greater understanding of who you are and what you're doing in our world. We love you so much. We thank you that you are here with us, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so here at H2O, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And with that, it's like we know that human authors like actually wrote it down, but we believe that God himself moved and directed those human authors to write what he, wants that, what he wanted them to write. Meaning that when we open up our Bibles, 
we are reading the Word of God. That's why we refer to it with that term sometimes. It means that we take it really seriously. We believe that it reveals perfect truth, and that's why we spend a lot of time studying it. If you come here on a Sunday morning, we're going to read the Bible a lot together. You go to life group on a Wednesday or Thursday night, you're going to spend time reading the Bible together. Why? Because we want to know God. And the Bible is the place that we believe he has spoken most clearly about who he is. It's not that we worship the Bible, but rather that we worship the one who inspired the Bible. And so if we want to know God, we want to let him speak for himself, and we believe that he has done that in the scriptures. So I'm going to start this sermon really just by reading a pretty decent amount of scripture. I think it's worthwhile for us to sit and actually read the text together. I hope that as a church, we're a church that comes to love and value the word of God. Uh, that, that our sermons are, are, are going to be based out of, hey, this is what the Word of God says, and even that you guys would be building a practice in your own lives to, to love the Word of God, to read it, to learn how to, to understand it and apply it in your lives. So we're going to read a decent amount of Scripture together this morning, and then uh, after that, I'm going to come back and, and we'll talk about what it has to say. But this is actually like the most important part of the sermon, right? <laughs> Whatever I say, I hope it's good. I think it's going to be good, um, but it's not the perfect Word of God. This is the perfect Word of God that we are going to be reading together this morning. So uh, with that being said, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter and into the first uh, three verses of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, so that is probably a somewhat familiar passage, I would assume, for most of the people in this room. Um, It's probably one of the most famous and well-known parts of the Bible. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, I would assume that you have uh, some level of familiarity with that, uh, probably. Um, Now, just because this passage is familiar, by no means suggests that it is simple. Uh, There has been endless material that's been written about this, uh, endless debates that have raged about what this passage is teaching. There are some that have rejected Christianity and the Bible on the basis that they think that uh, this account of creation is completely irreconcilable with what we know about our universe uh, because of science. And honestly, it's sad to me when (laughs) that happens to somebody, when they say they don't believe the Bible because of this passage. Because I believe that when people say that, they're often missing the point of what this passage is actually teaching. Now, at face value, the passage may seem extremely simple, right? Like it seems to tell the story of how God created the universe and everything in it in six days, which is a very viable option. But we should ask, is, is that for sure what this passage is actually teaching? Whenever we open the Bible, or any text for that matter, but especially we want to do this with the scripture, we have to ask the question, what is the author trying to communicate? Right? Like if you're trying to read any piece of literature, it's important that you understand what is this person trying to communicate. It's the most simple question, but it's, and sometimes it's very easy to figure this out, but sometimes actually it's not. As a matter of fact, it gets harder when there's more distance between you and the author, meaning that you live in a very different time and culture than the author did. The more different that you are from the author, the more likely it is that you might misunderstand what this person was trying to communicate. I'll show you why this is. For one, you, you might have a different understanding of the same word. For example, if I say the word earth, what do you think of? 
I'll bet for all of us, we have a mental picture that just came, I said Earth, which is this globe, right? Like this blue and green uh, planet suspended in, in blackness, right? That is not the same picture that would have come to the mind of an ancient person that was in the time when this text was written. They had not observed the earth in that way. They didn't know those kind of things about the earth. So they're, they're going to have a different understanding when, when they think about that word than what, what you do. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't get on the same page, but I'm just trying to help you see you're going to have certain ways that you approach words that might be different from how the original author approached certain words. You're also going to come to the passage with different interests, okay? There's a lot of things that are... Um, maybe interesting to ancient people that are not very interesting to us. I'll give you an example. When we read the Bible as 21st century Americans, most of us are not thinking a lot about the nation of Israel and the promises that God made to them. Okay, I think for the average church person, they're not thinking that much about that. We should because it's all over the Bible. It's a really huge theme. But, but I would say the average church person in my experience is not actually thinking that much about the nation of Israel when they when they read these things um but you have to realize yes the bible is the inspired word of god but who are the authors that he used to write it almost all of them were jewish men who cared a lot about the nation of israel and the promises that god had made to them they had a lot of interest in this topic if you don't take time to try to put yourself in the time and culture of, of the author there is a good chance that you will run the risk of misunderstanding what the author is trying to communicate. Now, I believe that this is an extremely difficult text, okay? There's a reason why it has been debated and, and so much has been written about it for so long, okay? It might surprise you, but there are faithful, solid, Bible-believing Christians that have held lots of different views on this passage throughout history, Okay, and I'm not saying that every view out there is equally valid. There's a lot of wacky views out there about how to interpret certain passages of the Bible. I'm talking good, sound, solid, biblical interpretive methods have led people to, to view this passage in different ways. Now, my goal is not to give you a super thorough explanation of every single one of those theories. We don't have time for that this morning, and this isn't really a context that I think I could do that very well in. We'd need probably more of a classroom setting. But I do think that it's worth me giving you a very brief overview of some of the major ways that faithful Christians have approached this passage uh, throughout history. Um, and, and then we'll get on to some of the stuff that I think is even more important to talk about from it. So just to answer that question of what exactly is this passage talking about? What's it saying? There's really three major views I want to take you through. The first is just this idea of young earth creationism. It's the one that seems naturally most straightforward in how you would read it. If you're reading an English translation of the Bible, this is probably um, the, the one that you'd be most likely to, to come to at, at first glance. Uh, it's the idea that the universe was created in six normal 24-hour days. Okay? Um, I want to start by saying I think that this is very much a legitimate possibility. Uh, if we believe that God is all-powerful, then there is no reason for us to believe that he could not have done everything that is talked about in the a six-day period. Now, the reason that many people reject this idea of creation is because what we have learned about our universe through all of our scientific observations throughout the years, right? Like the universe appears to be over 13 billion years old. The earth appears to be a, a, over 4 billion years old. 
it's hard to reconcile some of these kind of findings of modern science with such a short timeline of creation. Now, people that adhere to young earth creationism are usually going to explain these discrepancies between scientific observation and what they believe the biblical text is saying in one of two ways. Uh, first is that they might point to the flood. Okay, so later on in Genesis, we're going to get to this giant flood that happens, and they're going to say the, the flood was such a cataclysmic event that changed the earth so significantly. Um, it made all of these different kind of rock layers and everything that you're seeing in the geological timeline, and it, and it throws off all of our ability to gather data on that. Okay, I'm not going to get into all the details of that. If you want to dive into that deeper, you can look into the reasons that they give for that kind of stuff. But that's one of the main ways that they're going to explain those discrepancies. Um, the other option that you have is to simply say that God created a mature universe, right? So if you were to think of the question, um, did Adam have a belly button? Probably, right? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see him. But like, th there's this idea of, well, okay, he wouldn't have needed a belly button necessarily. He didn't have an umbilical cord. He wasn't ever in his mother's womb the way that all the rest of us were. But God didn't create him as an infant. Like, he had to have been created as a man. And so there's the, the idea is like, well, maybe God just created a universe that has all the markings of a, of a mature universe, the same way that when he created people, they were created in mature form. Um, that argument is actually completely impossible to defeat. Uh, there's, there's actually no way to argue against it, um, but it can still seem problematic to some people because it begs the question of why God would um, create all these different rock layers and fossil records and this kind of thing that, that don't necessarily seem to serve any real purpose except to lead people astray. Um, now, there's also some re reasons within the text that people have started to look to say, well, well, is that necessarily what the text is saying? Uh, the biggest one, in my opinion, is the fact that the sun, moon, and stars are not created until the fourth day. Well, if you're reading everything as, hey, this is what happened in this day, this day, this day, well, how is it that we measure what a day is? We do it by the sun, right? It's when the earth makes one full rotation, which, and, and well, the sun wasn't even created here, so how do we know that they're talking about 24-hour days? So this has led some people within, once again, faithful Bible-believing Christians to adopt a view of progressive creationism. And this is the idea that creation actually took much longer than the six days that are recorded here, uh, but rather it progressed through a long period of time, hence the name progressive creationism. It's most commonly explained by saying that each day listed here is actually um, a whole age. So these days could be lasting millions or, or billions of, of years. Um, they say, hey, there's some legitimacy, legitimacy to this because, yes, most of the time in the Bible when we see the word day, it is talking about a 24-hour period, the same way we would usually use it. But it can also mean like age or era. Right, even in just a little bit later in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and heaven. It's clearly saying in, in the age that God made the earth and heaven, right? So they're saying, hey, this is a legitimate way that we can view this word. The advantage of this view, of course, is that it allows the creation account uh, to make a lot more sense uh, to line up with what modern science has found. Um, however, opponents will say, hey, this is kind of a strange way to use the word day when it's most commonly used in the 24-hour sense. Um, 
And there are also other questions it raises when you compare it to other parts of Scripture. Um, most significantly, we see that death enters in the world of sin. Well, okay, if the earth is so old, how is it that, how, how could it exist for so long without death? And so they'll say, well, hey, the death that's being talked about is just human death, not animal death. But again, I don't have time to be able to get into all of these kind of details. I can't debate myself on all of these things up here. So I'm just trying to give you a brief overview. Every single one of these arguments is going to have both strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the, a third view that, that I really started to dig into quite a bit more this week, and it's one that's probably going to be least fami familiar with those of you in this room, is one called historical creationism. Um, this is a really interesting viewpoint that draws a, a, a big difference between Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the passage that we read. According to this view, the whole universe is created in the very first verse. So right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's saying, this is not a title, this is not a summary, this is telling us something big that God did here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so they're going to say that that word beginning, it's not so much speaking about a point in time as it is talking about a period in time. So it starts by saying, this is, this is the billions and billions of years that we see the geological record and, and um, our observations pointing towards that all happened in this age that we call the beginning. And then everything else that you see in the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is actually talking about the way that God was preparing the land for his people. Okay, the promised land, this, which is something that we're going to see a lot about as we continue to read on in Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. And when I say Pentateuch, uh, that means the first five books of the Bible. So the first five books of the Bible were all written by the same guy, Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we oftentimes read with a really narrow view, but, but sometimes that makes us miss the big picture that God is, is trying to help us see. Oftentimes we struggle seeing the connections between the Old and New Testament because we read with too narrow of a lens. One of the things I hope that what you guys are going to see as we preach through Genesis is the way that it's connected to the whole biblical story. So if we step back and try to read with a very big lens and say, okay, Moses, who, who was Moses in the first place? <clears throat> well, Moses was a Jewish man, <clears throat> that, or a Hebrew man, that God called to bring his people out of slavery and bring them up to the doorstep of the promised land. And that's really the story of what the whole Pentateuch, the, those first five books of the Bible, it's telling us that story. That's the, the main theme of it, is God bringing his people into this promised land, preparing it as a place for them to come and live and worship him in. And so as this is the beginning of the Pentateuch, the, the reasoning goes, man, it's not, a detailed, uh, it's not supposed to be a detailed account of how God created the universe. It's actually telling us, yes, God created the universe, verse 1. Now, let me tell you everything else about how God was preparing this specific land for the dwelling of his people. I know it might seem far-fetched at first, uh, but it's actually a much more convincing argument that you might think uh, when we think about, again, what are the interests that this author likely had? Moses is the author. What is he doing? He's, bringing, he's leading his people up to, to, up to, where the, prom, to the promised land. Um, and honestly, if we think about even what is the whole Bible about, what is the story that the Bible is telling us as this is the beginning of the Bible itself? Well, the Bible is a story about what God is doing 
to bring people into right relationship with himself, to restore everything so that we can live with him forever. And so it really kind of falls in line with this idea of God creating a place that is appropriate for people to dwell with him. So there's a lot more that I could, uh, could say about this, but one of the things that I will say in this, this view, there's two different words that are, are used when it's speaking about creating and making. Right? So the, the word that we're usually seeing translated as create is bara. And uh, we only see that word used when God is the one who's doing the bara. Uh, the word that we're seeing quite a bit throughout the rest of the chapter is this word made. And that does not necessarily have to mean creation so much as it can mean to put in order. The way that you might make your bed, right? If you made your bed this morning, you didn't create it. What you did is you put it in order and prepared it for use. Um, which is really saying that that's, this, in this view, what was done to the promised land. It was being put in order and set in use. So it says that the earth is formless and void. The idea is not so much the earth itself, but the land. As a matter of fact, that, that word there for earth is the Hebrew word eretz, and it's usually translated as land. So when it's speaking about this, it's saying not that the, the earth was some sort of strange mass that needed to be shaped. That was actually prominent in Greek thinking. But the idea is this land was desolate and uninhabited. So God had created all of it, but this specific promised land he was going to take you is desolate, it was uninhabited, it was covered in water. And so now we see God actually shaping it. He starts to move this water around. He, he starts to, to make the land rise up. He starts to uh, make these seas. He starts to prepare it as a place that's ready for his people to dwell that he will then bring them into. Now, um, I promised I'd be brief with explaining these, so I won't get into that anymore. If you want to talk with me more about any of that kind of stuff, I would be happy to, to walk you through <coughs> more of that and answer as many of your questions as I can. As I said, they all have strengths and uh, weaknesses. Um, but if you also want to read more on that, I, I just finished a book on it uh, by an Old Testament scholar named John Salehammer, who wrote a book called Genesis Unbound. It's, it's very uh, well done, very interesting. Um, okay. We could spend more time assessing the strengths and weaknesses of these different theories, um, but all I want to do is just help you to see that there are legitimately different ways that this text can be faithfully interpreted. It's extremely difficult because it covers subject matter that is, is so hard for us to relate to, right? It's narrative, meaning it's telling us a story that does seem clear, but it's, it's telling us a story that nobody was there to witness. Like with most narrative, we're reading about history that's familiar to us. We can relate to it. Uh, this idea of creation, it, it, we, we can't fathom the kind of things that it's talking about. And that adds to the interpretive difficulty. So we can debate lots of details. Um, but what's most important, I believe, in this passage is not the detail about how everything was created, but more so the truth about who created it. And I, I really believe that that's the, the main thrust of what the author is trying to get us to see. This is something that's very clear, and it's something that all Christians are in agreement about. Um, our church doesn't advocate a specific stance on the details of how exactly God created the universe, and we do believe that there's room for healthy debate and dialogue about this. But one thing that we do take a very clear stance on is that God created everything, and this passage teaches us so much about him. And it should be something that leads us to worship. So in the time that we have remaining, I really just want to show us what this passage is teaching us about the one who created. 
All right? And, and the first thing we see is that, man, God is eternal. And that statement there in Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was around at the beginning, right? Everything else has a beginning, but God doesn't. And again, that's kind of one of those things our mind can't actually fathom eternity. Everything that we think about has, has a beginning. We, we can't understand how God would even exist at a time when nothing else existed, but he did. He's supernatural. He's not bound by the same sort of limitations that the rest of our universe did. The universe has a creator, but God doesn't. He's always existed, and he always will. He has a nature that is greater than ours. And honestly, there's going to be some things about him that we can't understand fully. And guys, that should actually be comforting. I know when I was younger, sometimes I would get more upset about things about God that I couldn't fully understand. I would think, oh, is this some sort of flaw or something? No, it's not at all. Matter of fact, the fact that I can't fully understand everything about God is a good sign. (laughs) Because if I could fully understand everything about God, that means he was probably made up in some human's mind. If God is a creature that is infinitely greater than us and infinitely higher than us, why would we expect that we would be able to fully understand his nature? I mean, that would be like asking an ant to be able to fully understand the complexity of a human being. It, it can't. Yes, we can understand quite a bit about him that he's revealed to us, but we're not going to be able to understand every single thing about him. So we believe that God is eternal. He was around at the beginning. He has no creator. He's not limited by the laws of nature. An atheist has no way of, of answering how the universe came into being. Right? Because there's no room in his worldview for something that is not bound by the laws of our natural universe. God, by his very definition, is supernatural, above nature. He's not bound by the same things. So I would say that science actually points to the need for the supernatural because it runs into dead ends that suggest there has to be something more. Right? We can't scientifically test or observe the supernatural. But what we can scientifically test and observe shows us that there has to be some sort of missing component. And I would say that this is why science is actually not the enemy of faith, but rather it is a tool that can help us understand the world that God made and lead us to faith in him. We see that not only is our God eternal from this passage, but that he's powerful. Right? He is the one that created everything. And he's actually the only one that can truly create. Everything that we do, we actually, we actually aren't creators in the truest sense. We're more formers, right? Like we, we take material that he's already created and we <laughs> form it into something else, right? I, this is fun. I have a little two-year-old daughter and I've been trying to teach her about God. And uh, I, I love when she'll ask me, did God make this? You know, did God make that? So, so, so you know, I took her down to the Reds game the other day, and we were walking by some trees. He said, did God make the trees? I said, yeah, God made the trees. Okay. Did God make the flowers? Yeah. Said, and then there was a boat out on the river. Did God make the boat? <laughs> I was like, kind of. <laughs> humans made the boat, but God made the materials that the humans used to make the boat, and he made the humans that made the boat. So yes and no. But like, like, we as humans, yes, we, we create, but we're, we're kind of sub-creators. We, we can only create out of things that God has already created. But he's the one that's able to create out of nothing. He has a power that we can't even touch. Also, we see that God is relational. Okay, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 reads very strangely. I want to go back and read it together. Then God said... 
Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, if you were an English teacher, you'd be like using your red pen on that, right? What is going on? Like, what? God is referred to in, in both plural and singular terms. And, and, right? So it's like, let us make God, man in our image, yet it says that God created man in his own image, which is singular. What is going on here? That your translator didn't mess up. There, this, is, this is what's being communicated in the Hebrew that he's referred to here in both plural and singular terms. And this suggests the concept that we as Christians believe in, which is called the Trinity. The idea that, that God is one, but yet that he is three persons. And so, yes, he's, he's one God, but yet there's also three, like, persons within, within the Trinity. There's a, a, a group. It, it's something that we can't fully understand again, right? We go back to that thing of God has this nature that is greater than what we are able to fully understand. That's okay. I'm actually glad that I can't fully understand or perfectly explain the nature of our triune God. The thing is, we see this right here in Genesis chapter 1, that it is teaching that. Right? Even here, in, uh, we see it in the New Testament as well. When the Apostle John started his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What? How can you be with someone and be someone at the same time? Yet here it is. It's not like he got caught where it was like, oh, there was this, I forgot what I said over here, and then later I wrote this. It's like it's literally the same sentence. He's, he's trying to communicate something to us that's extremely difficult for us to grasp. You know, we see Jesus even allude to this in, in his prayer in John 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This idea that Jesus is, is one with the Father. They, they had this, this eternal fellowship even before all of this creation happened. So, so God is, is relational within himself. He's had fellowship within himself for eternity. Yet, he also is relational with us. Right? He, he created us in his image. That's what the passage says. Now, why, why does he do this? He doesn't create us just to keep us at a distance. Rather, he creates us as his image bearers to come and actually have relationship and fellowship with him. In the whole passage, you see that he's preparing a land for the man and woman to dwell with him in. And we see this teaching throughout Scripture that God wants us to relate to him, to walk with him. Look at Micah 6.8. He's told you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God wants fellowship with us. He wants us to love him. John preached last week on the Shema. This is the, the, the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God doesn't just want to keep us at a distance. He actually wants us to find him. I love what Paul said in Acts 17, 26-27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. 
though he is not far from each one of us. God wants us to seek him, to find him, and to be with him because he is a relational God. He has created you for a relationship with him. And, and really, as I said earlier, the whole story of the Bible is teaching us what God has done to restore that broken relationship. Because we're going to see as we continue through Genesis here pretty soon that that relationship has been broken by sin. Sin creates distance between us and God. But the beauty that we see throughout the rest of the scripture is what is God doing to fix that? Is he just going to leave us in this broken mess? Or is he going to do something to bring us back into relationship with him? And it ultimately all points towards the cross, which is the culmination of this plan that, that God would, would say, okay, you, you are, uh, relationship has been broken by your sin. It's, it's created death. It's created separation. But Jesus came. He took on flesh. He, he walked to the earth as a man, God in the flesh, and he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin so that that which was, was standing between us and God was removed. And we could be brought back into right relationship with him. That is the gospel. It's the whole story of what, what God is doing to bring us into relationship with him. And he wants you in relationship with him. We also see in this passage that God is generous. Right? And this is in every sense. First, he is quite simply just provides everything we need. Right? He gives all these different plants, yielding seed, surface of the of the earth, all the, every tree which has fruit yielding its seed, it should all be food for you. So he, he does a great job of being generous and giving us all this free food. But also even more generous is that he shares his image with us. How cool is that? Every other uh, thing that we see created, it talks about this thing like uh, being, being made according, and, and um, that they're all made like according to their own likeness. But we're made in the image and likeness of God. How generous that he would share that with us. That he, he would let us essentially be people that wear his name. And you know, we also see that God is empowering. He gives us a mission and he gives us the ability to carry it out. You see, after God created the male and the female, he said, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When God made us, he didn't just make us aimlessly. He made us for a relationship with him. He made us in his image and he made us to be image bearers that actually spread that image throughout his creation. Right? And that's one of the things that's so cool about the fact that he gives us this dominion over the birds and the, the animals and he tells us to be fruitful and multiply because as we do that, what are we doing? We are spreading his glory throughout the earth as his image bearers. Right? How cool is it that God has commissioned us to do that? We don't just have to go through life aimlessly, but rather we have a purpose to reflect the glory of God in his creation. So my hope is that after reading this first chapter of Genesis, that you are left more with awe than you are with questions. Yes, we're going to have questions. I know I, I, I can't come close to even possibly answering every question about this myself, much less answering every question that you may have in a format like this. I've spent hours and hours and hours studying. I believe there's a lot of answers there, but honestly, 
More than anything, I believe that this passage is designed to create in us an awe for who God is. A love for him. And it should be something that creates a certain response in us. And one of those responses should be to worship. Right? Like, may our response to this be worship as we understand that we serve a God that, that made all things. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's relational. He's generous. He's empowering. We have so many different reasons to praise him. Which is why I love the fact that we get to come and do that and sing together, right? Worship him for who he is. He is so great that we can't even fully understand him. I want us to take time to just meditate on who God is and how worthy he is of our worship. Do that during this this, uh, second worship set we're going to be entering into. And also, not only do we get to worship him for, for who he is, but also for what he's done. He gave us life. He provides for us. He gives us purpose. Man, I think so often we come to church expecting the pastor to give us some list of things to do to make our life better. And, and, and sometimes that will happen, right? Like there is a lot of stuff that the Bible tells us to do that, that can make your life better. That there's an aspect of truth to that. But I don't think that's the main purpose for why we gather together on Sunday mornings. I think the main reason we, we gather together on Sunday mornings is just to lift up the name of the Lord for us to all together consistently be reminded of how great and worthy of our worship he is. That's what we get to do when we open up the Bible. Every time we open up the Bible, we see more and more reason for why he's worthy of our worship. When we, we, we get to hear testimonies of how God has worked in the lives of other people, we get more and more reason to see why he's worthy of our worship. When we sing songs, talking about the great things he's done, we see more and more reasons why he's worthy of our worship. We come together every week here to, to consistently remind ourselves that, that he's worthy of our love, our worship, and our obedience, and we want him to stir our hearts up in that way. We want him to form us into people who love and worship him more so than people that come away with a checklist of knowing what we need to do. You know, as our hearts are drawn towards worship, one of the things that's going to result in is obedience. Right? When we think of worship, I don't want us to think of it just with a a narrow view of singing songs. That is a form of worship. But we worship the Lord in many ways just through living an obedient life. Because in doing so, we're saying, God, we believe that you're actually worthy of our obedience. You're worthy of listening to. And so our lives, uh, in our obedience, we get to say, God, you're king. And I can see that, right? Like, there's no doubt that if what Genesis 1 teaches is, is, is true, then, like, God is king. He created absolutely everything out of nothing. And so if that's the case, he's definitely worthy of our obedience. I also hope that our response is to understand the way that he's empowered us to go and actually have dominion over the rest of his creation because we're his image bearers. That we would go and and spread his glory. That's what Adam and Eve were getting to do as they were fruitful and multiplied and subdued the earth. They were showing the way that that God has power and dominion over all the earth. And so as we go forth from here, I hope and pray that we would be people that spread the glory of God. That we don't obscure it by trying to resist him or trying to ignore him or living in in, uh, disobedience to him, but rather we spread the glory of God as clearly as we possibly can by giving people the best picture of who he is, by being people that that have a character that reflects his, by being people that have lips that speak about him and that praise his name, 
and doing so, we get to spread his glory throughout creation. And finally, I, I hope that we'd be people that enjoy his presence. As we understand, like, what is God doing here? Regardless of whatever view you take, whether it's one of the three that I took, took you through or even something else outside of that, one thing we see for sure is that God is fashioning a place for people to live and to live with him, right? Just as we saw in this passage, that he wants us to walk with him, that he wants us to love him, that he wants us to find him. And so I hope that, that we come away from this understanding, man, God, you, just, you want us to enjoy you. You want us to love you. You want us to be with you. That we'd be people that understand our God has created us and created a place for us to be able to be with him. Let that be something that dominates our thoughts as we go throughout the week. You, you're not going out alone. God is with you in every single thing that you do. So uh, we're going to enter into another time of musical worship here. So band, you guys can come on back up. And uh, I'm just going to lead us in some prayer. And then, yeah, we're going we're gonna to sing some songs, which is an appropriate response to seeing the greatness of, uh, of who our God is. Lord, we love you, and uh, we just thank you that you've done the great things that your scripture speaks about. That you created everything out of nothing, and you did it in the beginning. Lord, no one else was there in the beginning, but you were. We thank you that, that you, almighty God of the universe, as great and as high above us as you are, that you're still relational, like you still care about us. You still want us to know you and to walk with you. I thank you that our praise gives you joy. It gives you glory. And God, we want to praise you with our lips here. We want to praise you with our lives as we go forth and obeying you and spreading your glory and just enjoying your presence. So God, I pray that You'd speak to us here this morning. I pray that you'd stir up our hearts for you. That you'd help us to leave here in, in greater love with you. Having a greater awe of you. Having a greater thankfulness and appreciation for who you are and what you've done. That we wouldn't just take life for granted, but that we'd realize that it actually comes from someone. That you're the one that gives it. God, let us not be ungrateful people that take every good gift that you've given us and, and just ignore you. But Lord, help us to be people that actually think about the way that you give everything that we have, every single thing that we enjoy, we have you to thank for. We love you so much, Lord, and we pray all this in your son's awesome name. Amen.